Psalm 137, here we go. Uh, it was the best of times, it was the, ber- uh, it was the worst of times. Uh, that's how Charles Dickens starts his famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And I must confess, that's as far as I got. Uh, this psalm is a tale of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And the last two verses grab our attention, don't they? They make us want to read over it again. What are we missing? They force us to find out more and ask, how do we explain this? Why should, why would Israel sing this as a hymn? Are these words in any way okay? Well, C.S. Lewis says, no, they're not okay. He thinks these words are wicked. Uh, That should not in any way be condoned. Uh, And I wonder if you think he's right. How do you come to that conclusion? It was the best of times for Babylon. They were the superpower. They made a name for themselves, a big name. They were triumphant over that city by which God had placed his name. Jerusalem is in ruins. It's the best of times for Babylon. But it's the worst of times for Jerusalem. The great city of God is a smouldering heap. The temple's been razed. Soldiers came in, pillaged, sacked the place, burnt it down and took the survivors into exile in Babylon. People were massacred. Babies' heads were dashed on rocks. And now they're in in captivity and Edom stood by and clapped. So verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. Little wonder. Uh, Maybe this psalm was written by one of Israel's singers uh, and maybe he's got no job now. His instruments are there, they're hanging in the tree, verse 2. Hanging in the tree because there's nothing to sing about. But of course the Babylons have an answer, don't they? They demand, verse 3, sing us a song of joy. Can you hear it? You there in chains... Sing us a song about how you're supposed to be the light of the world. Why don't you sing us one of those songs about how your God is the great God? Why don't you do that as you sit there in the dirt? We're all ears, let's go. Can you hear the antagonism and the torment? It'd be a bit like the Inverell Saints getting flogged 500 nil and the winning team says, sing us your victory song now, boys. Come on, sing us your song. But no way could they sing it. Imagine the anger, it'd start a brawl, wouldn't it? Uh, It would be humiliating and tormenting. But this situation is far, far more significant and far, far more worse. For God's people are captive in a foreign land. And notice, despite the antagonism, notice his refusal. Verse 2, the harps are hung up. And verse 4, the question, well, how can we? Verse 4, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? And so the implied answer is no thanks. No thanks. I mean, what is at stake here for them? Notice the psalmist, uh, it's one thing for them to be mocked and made fun of, but it's entirely another for their God. 
Zion's songs are supposed to be about God's supremacy and power. Jerusalem is supposed to be concrete proof of God's presence and power and rule in the world. And instead they find themselves in Babylon being tormented and belittled, not knowing where God is, not knowing what God is doing. And so this is a big crisis of faith here. Uh, We live in a world that often opposes God. It denies God and it belittles believers increasingly. And it might feel easy uh, to feel like we're in a minority. For some, the workplace is Babylon, where we're the odd one out. Our beliefs and values contrast those of others. What we say, how we talk is different and that stands out to people or you're asked to do something that is compromising if you talk to young tradesmen they'll tell you how at smoko workers pull out porn on their mobile devices and if you're not interested well the only conclusion can be that you're gay maybe the sporting team is babylon win at any cost right or the post-game celebration where excessive drunkenness is suddenly permissible because you won a footy match or sadly for a few babylon is at home at the dinner table can you imagine that uh, one friend of uh, tanya now's is uh, sits with her family at the dinner table and she sits quietly to say grace at the beginning of every meal quietly to herself, whilst her family laughs at her and shakes their head in mocking tones. These are places where Christians are perceived to be weak and stupid. Places where Christians are ridiculed because of their faith. And again, it's easy to feel like we are in a minority. Uh, Sometimes we do feel inadequate and that we don't have all the answers that we need. And in such places, we can decide to pretend that we belong to Babylon and conform, because that would be easier and less painful, or we can remain faithful uh, like this psalmist. Uh, One of the reasons uh, Babylon deported uh, the Israelites was to get them to integrate, to assimilate, to become Babylonian and to forget about Jerusalem and to forget about their God. That was the goal. Yet in this psalm, God's people are defiant. This is a psalm of defiance. There is no pretending. They're saying, we're not, we're not, in, we're not, uh, we're not of Babylon. We're of Jerusalem. And may we never forget that. And so at stake is not just God's honour, and reputation, but also at stake is the ability to remember. And how did they remember? Well, they remember through their songs. And it's these songs that they're not singing, such as their situation, they're not able to. In verses 4 to 6, the psalmist calls a curse on himself. This is how serious it is if he does not prove faithful. He declares that Jerusalem is to be his highest joy. You can hear his commitment, verse 5. Should this musician 
forget, verse 5, may my right hand forget its skill. Or should I forget, verse 6, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I, if I do not remember Jerusalem. Uh, here he is in the pit and the most important thing remains for him is remembering Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem important? Well, because Jerusalem is where God's people belong. It's to be home with God. It's where people went to fellowship with God. It's the centre of faith. It's the centre of their relationship through sacrifice. As blood was poured out, as sin was covered. It's, it's where the Old Testament scriptures were read and sung and explained. It's where God's goodness and love were exalted and praised. And so you can hear him long for this relationship with God, the longing to be back home in Jerusalem. And of course, for us Christians, Jerusalem takes on new meaning. We know this side of the cross. It's in Jesus. Jesus Christ himself is the place where we meet God. In Jesus, we find a home with God. Through Jesus, we have fellowship with God. There's no other way but through his blood and sacrifice so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can be right with God. Such that we read and sing the scriptures time and time again. It all comes back to Jesus. See, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet God. We, we come to Jesus to do that. And so the most important thing for us, for Christians, is Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour. And so may we not forget him above all else. The psalmist is willing to lose his livelihood, lest he forget. Did you notice that? And so I wonder a question. Would we ever pray verses 8 and 9 about our relationship with Jesus? Would we ever say, Lord, if I drift from you, take my driver's license away? Because that's what he's kind of doing here. Oh, Lord, if I ever forget you uh, through wealth and I drift from you, would you take my wealth away? Uh, Lord, if I drift from you, would, we, would you take away my farming smarts or, or my sharp intellect? Would you take away my resources? Or, or Lord, would you take away that relationship that's causing me to drift from you? Lest I forget you. That's, that's the sense of it here. He's saying, Lord, would you compromise me Lord, lest I compromise my relationship with you and forget you. Would Jesus ever say that? It's interesting because in the Beatitudes we heard Daniel read for us, it's not, it's not dissimilar. Uh, he makes it about body parts, doesn't he? When Jesus talks about the eye that causes you to sin, he says, take it out. It's much better for you to lose one eye than for your whole body to go to hell. The stakes seem to be the same. It's all there in Matthew 5. And so we see the highest thing for this bloke, and of course the highest thing for Jesus, is one's relationship, right relationship with God. 
above all else. It's incomparable to anything else. And so belonging to him and declaring our allegiance to him, we see here. And so sometimes we need to decide whether we're going to integrate into the world's culture or defiantly remember who we are in Christ. Do we belong to Babylon or do we belong to Christ? Our views on alcohol abuse or gambling or gender or sexuality or marriage are just the start. And so here is a cry amidst loss and enslavement and derision and devastation. And all he cares about is the glory of God. Verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is, he, is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Yuck. It's tough, isn't it? Very tough. And it does make us uncomfortable, and that's okay. But just because it makes us uncomfortable doesn't mean that we should just rip it out because it's offensive to our Western sensibilities. Uh, I'm conscious that as I read Psalm 137, I do so as someone who hasn't seen my town razed to the ground. I haven't seen people deported from Inverell, and nor have I seen women raped and our children's heads smashed against rocks. I haven't seen that. I can't imagine what it would be like to see that. But this guy did. The psalmist says, remember them, verse 7. Who's them? Well, it's the Edomites. And the Edomites are Jacob's related to Esau. And Esau was Jacob's brother. And so when we read Obadiah, it referred to the Edomites as brothers. They're meant to be brothers. But not only did Edom not come and help and not provide aid, far from being their brother's keeper, Israel's brothers called, tear it down. Go your hardest. Do a proper job of it. It was a call for Jerusalem to be raised, a call for God's sovereignty and rule to be torn down, to take the rule of God from the earth, to take down the foundations of Israel's faith and the foundation of their devotion and commitment to God. This is outright rebellion against God, and that is always a matter of justice. And so the psalmist simply cries, Lord, remember... It's a cry consistent with God's promises that speak of Edom's doom. And we read all about that in Obadiah, didn't we? You go to Isaiah 35, 63, Jeremiah 49, Lamentations 4, Ezekiel 25, Amos 1. It's all there repeatedly. And I can tell you, of course, I've walked through places that were once part of the kingdom of Edom. And you can be sure Edom really is no more. It's just ancient ruins and dust and more dust and tombs 
It's just an outdoor museum for tourists now. And so it's a mistake to war against and contend against God. It's a terrible thing to be at odds with God. But then we have verse 8. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Again, like Edom, he's asking God to do what God has already promised to do. Uh, You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 16. The whole chapter is about Babylon's doom. Babylon has come against the people of God. And so the prayer is God will come against them. This is a call for God to act. And see how uh, this is a traumatic memory of this siege. Uh, There's an emotional reflection taking place as he says, according to what they've done to us. That word happy is the same word used in Psalm 1 for blessed. So this is the difference between a righteous act and a wicked act. And those who are righteous are on the side of justice and on the side of not curse, but blessing. Now, you might be saying, but Adam, you know, we just read in the Gospels about turning the other cheek. Jesus says to do that. And of course, the answer is yes, we are to do that. Remember, this guy's in exile. He's probably seen his family die. And part of turning the other cheek is leaving such justice to God. And this is precisely what he's doing in this psalm. He's precisely turning the other cheek by giving his dilemma, his crisis of faith to God. God offers this psalm to his people as a righteous response to cruelty and oppression and injustice. And so this is a faithful cry, may I never forget, and this is a righteous cry. And so, yes, we are right to get on our knees and to cry out to God to act swiftly and justice. See, does God care about justice in our world? And the answer is yes, of course he does. And you might say, well, Adam, tell me about forgiveness then. How does forgiveness work out? Should we be asking God to forgive Edom and Babylon? And I would say to you that forgiveness isn't on the table here. Is God willing to forgive the sinner? Of course he is. Yeah, he is. But such forgiveness holds zero value unless one responds and accepts such forgiveness. Forgiveness without repentance is like drawing pictures in the water. The cruel and the violent aren't interested in our willingness to forgive. And they're not interested in God's willingness to forgive. They're not interested in reconciliation. So what do we do when reconciliation and forgiveness are not on the table, when the tanks roll in and the soldiers point guns at people's heads, 
when women are raped and children are tossed dead on a rubbish heap, what are we to do? When ISIS will dress you in orange, decapitate you and put it on YouTube for all to see, what do we do? And they'll do it as a demonstration of their outright rage and rejection of the Christian God that we know and love and worship. What are we to do? I think this psalm cries out to us not to lose sight of this option. That we can cry out to God and we can ask him to meet how his justice, not on just anybody, but on the cruel and on the violent. God's people are not expected to be silent about injustice in the world. The other question this psalm asks us is what do we cry about? What do we cry about? Thomas, as a toddler, uh, you know what toddlers are like. They have their own language, don't they? Tanya could translate sometimes. Most of the time I had no hope. Uh, but once, once Thomas managed to get my attention uh, one, one afternoon in Baraba, and he was very intentional about his desire to communicate, and he did a cracking job, so good he actually got me out of my chair, out of the lounge room, he got me into the kitchen now, and then he's got me to open the fridge door. And for a boy that had trouble talking, wow, you should have seen the smile on his face. It was a time of delight and joy as father and son were communicating clearly. And then up the finger went, he pointed to something in the fridge that he really wanted. And I pulled it out and it was chocolate in a wrapper. And again, his eyes lit up and he was as happy as all get out. And do you know what I said? Nah, mate. <laughs> I said, nah, mate, dinner's in five minutes. We're going to have dinner. And, uh, well, you can imagine what followed. He chucked the biggest patty the world's ever seen. Well, it felt like that. He collapsed in tears and was inconsolable for a fair while. I tell you that story to invite you to think about what we cry about. What do we cry about? What are the things that are worthy of our tears? Uh, do we cry about injustice and the suffering of other Christians in the world and their torment and their tears? How do we respond to violence and injustice that happens around us every day? And have you cried out to God and asked for it to stop? So it's very easy for this to feel distant and far away from us. It's hard to empathise when we're so comfortable and we're so sheltered. But many Christians are not. Many of our brothers and sisters suffers at, suffer at the hands of the wicked in our world. There are children in our world who've never known the freedom to walk safely down the main street of their village. Never known a life outside of war or slavery. And so this psalm is good for us because it reminds us there are people in the world for whom this is still a thing. Violence and oppression is still a daily event. And so the language here, well, it might be shocking to us, but is it possible that even more shocking is our ambivalence and our indifference? And our lack of apathy for those who suffer. God is asking us, for what do we cry? 
Violence and oppression is never far away. We cannot ignore the suffering of the innocent from war and terror, slavery, human trafficking, the detention of legitimate refugees, domestic violence victims or child abuse. And so one, Psalm 137, this psalm, offers a cure for our ignorance and a cure for our apathy. Babylon is still here. Babylon is still here, but God is still sovereign. And our cries against evil are faithful cries and they're right cries. And they demonstrate a desire for Christ to return, for his kingdom to come, and for his justice to reign, and for his salvation to be complete. The absence of such cry suggests ignorance, and maybe even cold-heartedness. And so the question remains, for what do we cry?